Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that, so thank you. All right, now for the show. Altamont Raceway Park was a half-mile oval just outside of Tracy, California. Regular patrons were used to the howling engines of stock cars flying around the banked turns. But on December 6th, 1969, a new kind of roar was coming to the track. Some of the world's biggest bands and all their fans had descended on the small town racetrack, packing the infield with more people and drugs than it had ever seen. The Altamont Free Concert was poised to rekindle the magic of the Woodstock Festival, bringing peace and love to the West Coast, closing out one of the most chaotic decades in American history. Unfortunately, those in attendance would find anything but peace and love. What were they going to find? <laughs> you can't just leave us like that. What are they going to find there? Uh, bears? No, not, not would bears. Would it be as, as cool as Woodstock or would something else happen? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. The ominous nature of that intro makes me believe that maybe um, something else is going to happen. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to Past Gas, another episode of Past Gas. I'm your one of your co-hosts, uh, Nolan Sykes, and joining me, as always, are my my two buds, 
Mr. James Pomfrey. Hello. Uh. <laughs> and Joe Weber. Fired up. The viewer might notice that I'm not sitting on the floor anymore. Uh, I have a desk now, and I have it next to my window, so I've been able to watch all the cars that drive by uh, all day, and I've noticed that there's a lot of actually really cool cars in my neighborhood I'm really stoked about. Um, also, I saw a gang of uh, mini bike riders. Uh, there's like That's seven so dudes on, not on like Groms, but on like like tiny mini bikes. Yeah, like Briggs and Stratton. Uh, rolling around. Yeah, Briggs and Stratton engines. It was super cool. I want I want to ride with them. There's a guy trying to sell like a puke green M5 in my neighborhood, and it's been for sale for like the whole time I've lived here. And I think he finally sold. Oh no! Oh no! How am I gonna imagine myself buying it now? <laughs> how would I? How am I gonna <laughs> not buy that now? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that happened last week. I, I saw this sweet Chevy C10. I've seen it before on Craigslist. And it's like dark forest green. It's got like rust on it. So it's basically the perfect car. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but then after about two days, the posting was removed. So I, I'm just hoping that he took it down again because he said in the ad he's not in any hurry to sell it. So in my mind, no one wanted it. And he's like, ah, I'll take it down. So when the timing is right, it'll it'll reappear and I will Hell buy yeah. it. Please someone make a meme of Nolan of that guy looking at the other woman and the woman is patina and then the other woman is uh, a perfectly shiny car clean car yeah, yeah. <laughs> i like rust what can i say i would upvote that <laughs> yeah i'd upvote that anyway today on past cast <laughs> we are continuing our hell's angels series and examining perhaps the most infamous moment in the club's history uh the stabbing of meredith hunter at the Altamont Free Concert in 1969. Last episode, we discussed how the Hells Angels were riding a wave of, I would say, public favor almost after the release of Hunter S. Thompson's book about the club. And we also discussed how the portrayal in the media might have been a little, well, it was both earned and unearned in certain aspects. Uh, unfortunately for them, though, this is the episode where things really take a nosedive. Um, and changing public perception of the club for decades. But there is some hope for the club because I don't think what we're going to talk about today is completely their fault. Uh, we can discuss that at the end. Boys, are you ready? Yeah. I'm ready! <laughs> All right. In 1964, a band known as The Beatles... Never heard of them. ...first stepped... <laughs> first stepped foot on U.S. soil, kicking off what would be known as the British Invasion. The British Wait, Invasion... Wait, is that the band that the Ruddles cover? I know the Ruddles. I'm sorry, what? A, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> the Ruddles. <laughs> Never mind. Was, the Ruddles are a Beatles cover band that have been around for like 40 years. <laughs> okay, I didn't, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, that's Strike Zone, Joe. <laughs> yeah, anyway, the British Invasion... Uh, sparked a major cultural movement in the U.S. when the Beatles first hit the airwaves in 1964. Everyone loves the Beatles. I fucking whatever, man. That's what I. I don't hate the Beatles, but the Beatles suck. I think there there was like a time like ten years ago or so when I was in high school, uh, and like the Beatles were hitting like another wave of popularity, mm -hmm. and everyone 
fucking thought that they were the greatest band in the world. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm a little older, I, I can recognize their significance. Yeah. But at the time, I was just like, like, our parents listen to this and their parents kind of listen to it. I just thought it was so overblown. Yeah. Uh, but now I've really, I've come to appreciate they, them. I think they got some all, good songs, but like good. there's that movie yesterday that I watched because, you know, oh, quarantine. I don't like that. And that movie is so dumb because the whole premise is just like expecting everybody to be like, well, yeah, the Beatles are the best band ever, right? Like the Beatles are like just, I mean, it's the best uh-huh. song ever. You've never heard this freaking amazing song? So like in yesterday, like <laughs> the Beatles just somehow don't exist because something happens. But like this one guy knows all the Beatles songs and so he becomes super famous. But like one, the premise, yeah, is just based on the assumption that we all agree that the Beatles are the best. And then also Beatles don't even slap like Drake would still outsell the fucking Beatles right now. <laughs> I would rather see a, a, a yesterday uh, remake where I wake up one morning and nobody knows who Fred Durst is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, you're like no but there is this really mediocre uh rap rock guy <laughs> they were from tampa How do you, you not guys know don't understand <laughs> like if i think they're from like Orlando. i would uh, that movie would be great if like Con- like people woke up and didn't know who kanye was and then you're like i'm gonna make all kanye songs but i'm not gonna be weird i'm just gonna be really be amazing <laughs> i'm gonna be really nice and i'm just gonna like be a cool guy who makes the best songs ever <laughs> Here's the thing, though. I, it, it wouldn't sell. Kanye's personality is what sells the music. No, it's the music. No, his music sells Dude, the music. No. His, his music sells the music in spite of his personality. Well, this is a discussion for another podcast. Yeah. Uh, let's continue. <laughs> anyway, I just want to say the Beatles don't even slap. If the Beatles, if people gave, if people cared what the Beatles sound like now, Oasis would be the biggest band in the world. Oasis? Yeah. They were like the biggest band in the world. Yeah, in 1997 when my grandpa was in kindergarten. <laughs> got him. I mean, you got me there. You're right. Uh, shout out to the Gallagher brothers. Yeah. Anyway, the the, Be- the Beatles brought with them hip songs full of character and passion. Immediately taking the 25th place on the top 40 charts uh, with their debut in 1964. Beatlemania swept the nation, followed closely by other British bands such as the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, and the Who, <laughs> as well as the Animals. Uh, <laughs> I like saying the Who with the question. <laughs> That's fun. That's fun. As uh, Rolling Stone magazine, not the band, uh, <laughs> stated, it was possible that much of the Beatles' initial success stateside could be attributed to the U.S. needing a new figurehead to rest its youthful idealism on. Uh, It had previously rested on JFK until his assassination. Uh, Regardless of how the Beatles found their success, the British invasion that followed was the first excuse for mania from the youth since Elvis Presley or Buddy Holly. Can you imagine? You know, time is is relative, I guess, and uh, cultural tastes are relative to the time, but, like, can you imagine people going just freaking ape shit for Elvis? Yeah. Yeah. Like, imagine if Twitter was around when Elvis was big, you know? I bet Twitter, would, or I mean, bet, like, Elvis would have dropped an N-bomb in early Twitter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, are, you guys, are you guys a bigger fan of the Beatles or Rolling Stone magazine? <laughs> I'd say probably, probably the Beatles. I've never actually read a Rolling Stone magazine. Wow. So, yeah, it's all right. 
as far as publications go, they're all right. I feel like it's still a big deal, though. If, like, you got the cover of Rolling Stone, that's, like, that's still one of the only magazines where that'd be, like, really cool. I'd love to be on the cover of Bon Appetit. Yeah. Uh, you, uh, I, I <coughs> scoffed at that, but then I remembered that you're actually a great cook, so that would actually be yeah. very cool. Yeah, Joe, I think you'd be right at home on the cover of Bon Appetit because you're a snack. Oh, get out of <laughs> yeah. here. I want to see Joe in the Bon Appetit kitchen just freaking going head-to-head with Brad Leone. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet we'd be friends. Yeah, but you guys would. You guys would be boys for sure. Yeah, for sure. Kanan would be his friend too because Brad Leone loves knives. <laughs> <laughs> London had become a hot spot for some of the most intense forms of rock and blues music at the time. Uh, many of. <laughs> what? So funny, Joe. <laughs> That's a funny sentence. It just sounds like. Uh, I. I don't know. Never mind. Okay. Many of these sounds over there were heavily inspired by Louisiana-style jazz and blues. Um, I think there is some discussion to be had whether or not they were inspired or just completely Ripped ripping them off. off. Yeah. <laughs> Ripped them straight um, the off, music. just like Moby. The thriving rhythm and blues scene gave birth to many other aficionados, one of them being Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones. Uh, their Stones kicked off their American debut with I Can't Get No Satisfaction in 1965. That song is and, pretty cool. Know, that song's dope. Yeah. I will say, I do like the Rolling Stones. Not not like a huge Stones head. I, I don't know the deep cuts, but like when their stuff comes on the radio, when I'm driving with my, with my parents, um, <laughs> it is uh, <laughs> it's pretty good. I like it. Yeah, yeah. I Can't Get No Satisfaction is just about being like so cool. That yeah. you can't even be satisfied. Yeah, and like you see like a guy wearing like the same sunglasses as you, and you're just like, oh man, guy sucks. <laughs> uh, the British invasion lasted from 1964 to 1967, but the invasion had a profound impact on helping internationalize music production as well as allow previously unknown bands to get their foot in the door and achieve unprecedented amounts of success. The British invasion could be seen as the um, beginning of a, a generational gap. As Rolling Stone magazine once again puts it, quote, American youngsters hadn't gone crazy. They just woke up, looked around, and decided they all felt the same way about something that was important to them. And this newfound solidarity was an exciting thing. So, I mean, this this music was so far ahead of like what uh their parents were used to at the time because like we gotta we gotta remember like kids who were listening to this music in the 60s you know they were probably in their teens or in their early 20s so their parents were probably listening to the music that was made in like the 30s yeah, and 40s their parents you know, were that listening was, to stuff that's like i'm a baby what a baby oh look at that baby she's driving in my model t and we're going to the promenade yesterday i saw an aeroplane no i'm just kidding airplanes aren't real <laughs> um my my grandpa one of his favorite songs was this song called granada um but uh, I can I can already tell just by hearing that one song that he was probably not a huge Rolling Stones fan. Rolling Stones entered the scene with a unique blend of blues and rock. They created their own genre basically by mashing a whole bunch of other genres together. Early on, they would even include a sitar and a slide guitar to help create an even more unique sound. 
While their roots lied in the blues, the Rolling Stones were no stranger to experimenting in psychedelic rock. In 1967, the album Their Satanic Majesty's Request was released, filled with unheard of African rhythms, sound effects, weird string arrangements, and so on. It was the first and last time the Stones decided to try their hand at psychedelic rock, but it still contributed to what would be the soundtrack to one of the wildest counterculture movements in American history. The hippie counterculture, boo, movement in America was started in part by anti-war protests like the Vietnam Day March we discussed in the last episode in which the Hells Angels clashed with nonviolent protesters tearing down signs and PA equipment. Initially called beatniks, the term hippie came about when a human be-in event took place in San Francisco in January of 1967, around the time Hunter S. Thompson's Hells Angels book was published. The movement encouraged personal empowerment, political decentralization, ecological awareness, questioning authority and higher consciousness through the aid of psychedelic drugs. Basically, it was a bunch of people getting together to encourage everything that their parents hated. But if there was one thing hippies loved more than anything, it was getting together with like-minded individuals, smoking some doobsters, and attending large music festivals. Sounds like a bunch of rich kids. You know, I think it is pretty interesting, though, how that kind of mindset was so prevalent uh across the country without the use of the internet Mm -hmm. um you would expect more stuff like this to be more common nowadays but it almost seems like less so like the internet has allowed communities to stratify so much deeper Mm -hmm. instead of really bringing one homogenous mindset together which is both really cool and i don't know yeah, kind of weird. Like, at the same like time. in the sixties, like before the internet, there was a counterculture, and I think like almost every decade can be um, defined by like a look. You know, like you can do like hairstyles through the decades, but nowadays I feel like you can hardly even uh, define six months by a thing. You know? Yeah, it's pretty. It, I don't know how to feel about it. Like I don't want to be like old man like oh kids these days because that's so annoying um but i don't know it's just i wish there was a more defining kind of thing maybe it's better that it, there isn't i mean you know? we do have a I global think, pandemic think, and everyone is stuck at their house right now i know but as but, far as trends go could we live in a very hip city mm-hmm. used to seeing like so many different eclectic styles but like I could define a dude style in 2010s, like the fucking the beard yeah. with like the Hitler Le- Hitler Youth haircut uh-huh. and uh you know a, a flannel uh-huh. and yeah. tight skinny jeans. That's like the 2010s. Yeah, to me. for sure. Macklemore really made that undercut pretty popular, huh? <laughs> yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> when I was younger, I th- I thought I was gay because I could draw. Remember that? <laughs> Yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, wasn't it like, oh, thank God I wasn't gay. Yeah, thank gay. God I wasn't gay. <laughs> I thought because I could draw, I was gay. But my uncle's gay, and he's okay. <laughs> Skitty, Oh, man, he's an advocate. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> guy's cool. Love whoever you want. Love whoever you want. But I feel like um, the hippie movement started in a good place. Like, like it's, it's all right to protest the Vietnam War because that was a bullshit war we shouldn't have been in. Uh, but then Absolutely. it kind of got bastardized into this like hip thing 
and pe- the the message got lost somewhere in the in the mm-hmm. mix. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, if there's no like leadership behind any movement, then it's just gonna fizzle out with people just <laughs> smoking fat dubs, as you said, James, just in, yeah. in a field somewhere. Uh, the most notable of these fields was the large uh, was the Woodstock Festival of 1969. Woodstock has become famous in history for being one of the most successful free music festivals of all time. The event was billed as a, quote, Aquarian exposition, man. Three days of peace and music, man. (laughs) (laughs) It attracted an estimated audience of over 400,000 people to a field in the middle of Bethel, New York a town with a population of less than 4500 people. Can you imagine, dude? It was it wasn't meant to be free though. No. They were like, "Oh shit, we forgot to build fences. <laughs> I guess it's free now." <laughs> Why isn't anyone coming through the ticket line? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the honor system? <laughs> to many of the people who attended Woodstock, the concert was an opportunity to demonstrate to the world the ideals they had been preaching since the very beginning. Peace, love, and unity. And while overall Woodstock went fairly well, it didn't exactly go off without a hitch. Rainy weather turned the fields into mud, which was only a small setback to the carefree people high on acid who didn't really notice. I could tell you, though, it was a huge fucking concern for the people running electricity and audio. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Joe uh, went to school for music production, so that's that coming out. A one notable character of Woodstock was the amazingly named Mr. Wavy Gravy Man. Uh, Wavy Gravy ran a commune down in New Mexico. His official title was the P- the Please Chief of the Please Force. He he came to Woodstock um, with the purpose of helping people who needed taken care of, whether that was setting up a playground for children who were at Woodstock. <laughs> Or watching over people who were freaking out on drugs, having a bad trip. His entire plan was to quote, We're going to try and be groovy and spread that grooviness through everybody, man. <laughs> that sounded like Buffalo Bill. <laughs> Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Don't worry, man. You're going to be okay. Let's get this guy some orange slices, man. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I got an ice cream named after me. Yeah, chubby hubby, man. <laughs> what would your Ben and Jerry's be? What flavor? Uh, mine would be like a plant's bimoni. Oh, yum. Uh, so I think I'd still have the pistachio ice cream in there. And then I would do like uh, Madagascar vanilla. Mm. And then uh, like a raspberry. Ice Damn, cream. we shouldn't have let Joe go first. <laughs> 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 yeah, I would just try to find a way to... Uh, to introduce the flavors of pineapple and ham pizza into an ice cream just to piss everyone off. <laughs> ham, ham ice cream. <laughs> no one. Absolutely no one. Nolan, I'd love some ham ice cream. <laughs> I had corn ice cream the other day. It was great. Whoa. Yeah. It was vegan right. corn soft serve. <laughs> Why? What the? F- I'm sorry. What? I have, to inter- <laughs> I have to interrupt this digression with this. Why corn ice cream? It's sweet. <laughs> it was vegan. Yeah, corn right, is sweet makes, as hell, That dude. actually makes sense. It was vegan corn soft serve, and then I got some butterscotch rice krispies on top. It was a nice treat. Ooh. I can't uh, get down with that charcoal ice cream. Yeah, too much stuff is charcoal. 
The only time I want charcoal is yeah. if I got a bee sting. You know what I mean? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't know what that means, James. Overall, Woodstock was a success, despite the fact that there were only about a dozen security guards for the entire crowd of 400,000 people. Uh, only So two people died, <laughs> and both of them were accidents with no foul play suspected. Oh, my God. Uh, may, I, I, I don't know the details of their death, but um, I'm electrocution actually sounds pretty likely. Um, uh, there's also uh, one of them was bad drugs. They had to get on the loudspeaker and be like, the brown acid is bad or whatever. Oh, Joseph said someone got run over by a tractor. <laughs> oh, sh- okay. That seems so tractor- very avoidable. <laughs> tractor and bad drugs. The tractor wants to say hi to me, man. <laughs> that tractor wants to give me a hug, man. Oh, no. He's not stopping. <laughs> He's hugging me too uh. hard. We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Rest in peace to Tractor Man and Bad Drugs Man. Um One band that was not allowed to perform at Woodstock, however, was the Rolling Stones. Uh, But that was all right with them because they had other plans. The Rolling Stones were going to do their own U.S. tour instead. That's cool. In November of 1969, the Rolling Stones kicked off their 24-date U.S. tour, a tour widely considered to be nothing less than a rock and roll legend. Instead of playing shows for small venues and half-booked crowds like in their previous tours, the Stones were now booking sold-out frickin' arenas, baby. They upped their production value using better amplifiers and hiring Chip Monk, the same guy who rigged the lights for Woodstock. (laughs) Chip Monk? (laughs) Chip Monk, yeah. Uh, The same guy who rigged the lights for Woodstock as their lighting designer. Chip Monk. That guy actually won a Tony, I think, for his work at Woodstock. Wow. Well, Somehow. I thought Tonys were just for like musicals. Dude, who's to say that Woodstock wasn't a musical? That's true. <laughs> you know what I'm Do saying? you guys know that uh, the Beatles only did like a couple tours because they didn't have the amplifier technology to get louder than the screaming fans? Wow. So you couldn't you couldn't hear shit at their concerts because all the screaming girls. Hey, could That's you be quiet? Funny. You're ruining the show. <laughs> <Shush>. <laughs> we're really flattered, but you can't even hear our music. 
These girls really do like our stupid haircuts. Not so, not such a great guy uh, out of the public light. Mm-mm. But Plasticona is a great album. Good lord. No expense was spared on this tour. <laughs> they easily sold over $1 million worth of tickets, filling every seat in the house. The house being huge freaking arenas, baby. Something interesting to note during the second concert of the tour in Oakland. One of the first ever live bootleg recordings was recorded of their show, Liver Than You'll Ever Be. But journalists and audiences were complaining about the overpriced tickets at a little over $3 a piece. So the Stones decided to respond to this criticism by ending their tour with a free concert in San Francisco. By the way, $3 back then was only like 20 bucks today, <laughs> which is like a freaking steal. Yeah, yeah that was like... The same thing that Kid Rock got like commended for was offering $20 tickets for his mm-hmm. shows. <laughs> that was pretty cool of him. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the, the Kid Rock, but uh, I think that's cool. The Rolling Stones, Jefferson Airplane, and the Grateful Dead all got together and decided that they wanted to host their very own Woodstock for the West Coast. Oh, man, here comes that peace and love, dude. I can just feel it. Nothing's going to go wrong. Yeah, no bears are going to show up. The free concert was supposed to take place at San Jose State University at a practice field as a three-day concert festival had recently been held there with over 50,000 attendees without any issue. But the center's management informed the band that they were no longer interested in hosting another event as they just weren't paying to deal with such a large turnout. So after tearing through all the other alternatives, the owner of Altamont Raceway suggested to the band that they use his space. It's not uncommon for racetracks to be used as uh, concert venues even today. Like uh, Circuit of the Americas over there in Austin is a great concert place. Uh, the Hockenheim Ring over in Germany. I've heard of that. There's always a huge show at the Hockenheim Ring, which I would love to go to. That'd be amazing. Yeah, I want. can you imagine seeing uh, Hasselhoff at the Hockenheim Ring? Oh, dude. That's like a... Doing his fave, doing a cover of Du Haas. <laughs> du ha- Hasselhoff. <laughs> The concert was set for December 6, 1969. Nice. The hasty change of location caused an organizational shit show. One of the most critical elements that had to be figured out was the stage location. Typically. Yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah. Yeah. Typically, you place the stage on a raised platform to create a barrier between the musicians and the fans. But at Altamont, everything was sort of hobbled together. There wasn't really anyone in command at the event. So things on the construction side ended up pretty quickly devolving into chaos. One of the biggest design oversights was stage placement. Like we said, instead of up high, it was placed too low, removing most of the barrier between the groups. But the bands were going to have to make do, as there wasn't any time until the event began. People climbing up on stage was actually a really big issue at previous concerts. It turns out everyone wanted to grab a piece of Mick Jagger, and I can probably guess Mm -mm -mm. which piece... And it got to the point where some audience members would sometimes have to restrain other audience members to keep them from worming their way up onto the stage. There's a surprising number. What what kind of narc audience members are grabbing other audience members? Yeah, dude, don't go up there and touch his toes. If I can't do it, you can't do it. There's a surprising number of clips of Mick Jagger dancing his way around fans as they rushed him on stage at earlier events. The presence of drugs only increased the multitude of these instances. I think, like, you know, collaboration is important on big projects. Um, it's good to have everyone kind of giving input on what they think is the best course of action. That's one of the uh, main tenets of Donut. But I think 
one of the places that you don't want very loose leadership is when it comes to venue construction <laughs> uh, or construction of <laughs> any kind for that matter. Yeah. Uh, you got to have someone who knows the vision of what they want to do and is willing to lead and make sure that happens and follows through with it. Uh, a tiny stage three feet above the crowd is not going to cut it. Yeah, I feel you. I agree 100. The Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane came up with a solution to the security issue. Since the police were not welcome to enter the event, as the Stones, as well as other people in their uh, vicinity, had some drug charges against them, uh, they didn't want to risk getting arrested. Uh, Jefferson Airplane recommended that the Stones hire the Hells Angels to act as event security. For $500 worth of beer and front row seats to the show, the Hells Angels would act as an informal security force to protect the band members from the expected crowd of only 50,000 people. All the Angels were expected to do was sit on the edge of the stage and prevent the, quote, groundlings from climbing up on the stage and make sure that no one was, uh, you know, getting uh, assaulted or murdered in the audience. <laughs> that was the the wording of it, right? Of their contract. Yeah. Just make sure no one's getting murdered. Uh, we're going to give you front row seats, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll give you a beer. Just beer. make sure no one uh, touches Mick Jagger's big toe and uh, make sure no one else gets murdered. <laughs> That's literally the only stipulation <laughs> yeah. in your contract. Yep. Just make sure no one gets murdered. Right. No one gets murdered. Yeah. Why do you keep saying it? Yeah, like yeah, that? yeah. No one gets murdered. <laughs> I don't know what the emphasis has to no, do with yeah, it. Yeah, uh, yeah. No one. Okay, not a single person gets murdered. Okay, it seems like you're uh, being cheeky right <laughs> yeah. now. I don't, uh -huh. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> well, cool. Here's a bunch of beer. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let me get really, really drunk, and then nobody's going to get murdered. <laughs> <laughs> The concert began on Thursday, December 6th, 1969. Nice. By the time the Stones arrived to the venue, there was already a foul and toxic mood in the air. Uh, there had already been one death at the event when one fan who was uh, rolling on LSD drowned in an irrigation canal making his way oh from his God. car to the field. So not a good start. Mm -hmm. uh, and as soon as their helicopter touched down, an audience member charged the band, punching Mick Jagger in the jaw <laughs> while shouting, I hate you. <laughs> That's insane. That is insane. Uh, wow, the, the hippies are just full yeah, of love, right? in love, man. <laughs> the concert was out of control before it had even begun, and uh, frankly, they should have called it quits right there. As 300,000 people poured into Altamont Speedway, People were having bad trips and going crazy in the crowd. Fights were breaking out with or without the Hells Angels. The short setup time meant that the amenities for the crowd were severely lacking as well. Uh, there was little in regards to food and water, as well as toilets. Uh, they did, however, have a, quote, lost children department located behind the stage in case you uh, lost your kid. <laughs> so, yeah, there was there, no running water. Uh... It was much like Woodstock in that way, where it's just completely underprepared. And, uh, you know, I think when they said they wanted to have Woodstock on the West Coast, that, that was when, like, a monkey's paw curled down, you know? Because mm -hmm. uh, they're getting all the bad stuff, none of the good stuff. 
it's the same problems that they ran into at Woodstock too. It's like, but they they had no excuse because they had Woodstock had already happened and they should have learned from it. Plus, it's only fifty thousand people and not four hundred thousand people. Yeah, but way too many people showed up. You know, so oh, three hundred thousand. Sorry, yeah, three hundred thousand people, man. So yeah, six. Okay, times. so it's the exact same thing that happened. Yeah. People were high on acid everywhere to the point where they had designated cool down areas if you were having a bad trip. Opium was also very present, and so was the doobage itself, Mr. Pot Pot. <laughs> people would just sit on busy walkways and shout out what kind of drugs they were selling. Some people took this as an opportunity to ask for donations to certain organizations, including the Panther Defense Fund, which went towards funding the legal defense of people involved in the Black Panther organization. While there were plenty of All people right. there having a good time, what was witnessed was a shocking lack of regard for the entire peace and love aspects that the counterculture movement had been pushing. As I think this is where we're seeing it. It's just like the 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 concepts have lost all meaning at this point and people are there just to party yeah you know as some say that that's the whole yeah that's the whole point of the whole quote-unquote movement as soon as carlos santana started his set a fight broke out on stage that forced him to stop everything until it was resolved soon after a guy stripped off all his clothes and tried climbing up on stage with the band only to be met by our buddies the hell's angels the angels were hired to keep rowdy people off the stage, and they came prepared to do just that. Most notable weapon they came with were weighted pull cues. <laughs> a pull cue's not enough. Got to add some weights to it. There's a bat store down the road. <laughs> no, we got to have pool cues, and they got to be heavier than normal pool You're cues. You're talking about a baseball bat. <laughs> yeah, but these are pool cues. They're longer and less heavy that's why we gotta add more weight you don't you don't play with baseball bats in a bar and bars is the kind of places that we likes to go (laughs) they would also use use the tools that you know you know they would also use uh they would also use motorcycle chains and beer cans motorcycle chains are cool when we got stuck in the parking lot in the first season of high low i found a motorcycle chain on the ground i played with it for about four hours did you whip no but i thought i was like pretending it was cool (laughs) Yeah, I mean, as I think we mentioned it in previous episodes, uh, the Hells Angels would often wear motorcycle chains as a belt in a way. Uh, and that, you know, it, it served two functions to keep your pants up. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a easily concealable weapon. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's just a cool look. <laughs> yeah. At some point during Jefferson Airplane set, things started getting even more out of hand. Another man began crowd surfing his way up to the stage, though, to be honest, in the recording, it definitely doesn't seem like he is crowd surfing. It's more or less just being tossed around between a bunch of people who wanted nothing to do with him until, or his stinky bare butt until he made his way all the way up to the stage. As soon, <laughs> that'd be disgusting, dude. Oh uh, yeah, dude. Just some concerts guys, get yeah. so sweaty as it is. Yeah. I don't want some naked guy floating on top of me with his yeah. freaking balls just and hanging then down. A big sweaty ass just hits you <laughs> on the forehead. <laughs> oh! yeah. As soon as he reached the stage, a Hells Angels member grabbed him by the neck and threw him back into the crowd after smashing him in the face with a pool cue. One of the singers of Jefferson Airplane, Marty Ballin, took offense to the way the angels were treating them, cursing at a nearby angel on stage. Paul Hibbets, an angel known as Animal, was wearing a fox head hat. Of course, not one to be insulted, Hibbets immediately decked Martin Ballin, knocking him unconscious. When he came to, he cursed at Habits again, who knocked him out for a second time. 
Grace Slick, the lead singer of Jefferson Airplane, instructed the audience that you need to keep your bodies off of each other unless you intend love. Sorry, just that sentence. I get why people don't like hippies now. Yeah, man, they're fucking dumb. <laughs> and then they went and ruined the whole planet. I don't know. I think I've I, I've been too naive this whole yeah, time. Dude, uh, hippies are the reason that none of us will ever be able to buy a house. Damn. Yeah. At a concert, there is a distinct class system in play. Huh, speaking of class systems, you have your musicians and you have your audience. The musicians are typically untouchable. They can really do no wrong. And if they do, you can't do anything about it. But when Hibbets atta attacked Martin Balin, that sent the entire audience the message that the sacred class system had been broken. The musicians uh. were now fair game and potential targets to the violence incited by the angels. The audience was afraid of the angels, but they wouldn't say it out loud because they were afraid they would be next on their shit list. Safe to say, the vibe was off, man. Once the violence appeared to be getting out of control, the Grateful Dead made the decision to pull the plug and leave the concert, returning to San Francisco without playing. And that was probably the safest decision yeah. they could have made. But... It left a 75-minute gap until the Rolling Stones would take the stage. Uh -oh. People yeah. are just getting drunker and drunker, and it gets hotter and hotter. I, Shit. I can truly not imagine a more uncomfortable place to be in than at yeah. that concert with this all going down. <laughs> this sounds awful. Yeah, we got a race We used to go to racetracks a lot for work, and um, just like in a normal situation. Like, they're fun, but it's a pretty miserable place. Like, it's, uh, especially in California, they're all kind of like, yeah. I mean, is Altamont, like, just dusty? and It's just out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, and hot. And this yeah. was in December, so it was actually getting pretty cold. Oh. It, was, it wasn't It was hot. It was the opposite direction. It was too oh, cold weird. now. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Still just, like, no no shade anywhere. Yeah. Uh, just out in a big, dusty field. Yeah, I mean, they build racetracks in places that aren't close to where people live. So you can kind of, you know, you can be loud. So you're just out in the middle of nowhere in the most desolate places. And now you're just surrounded by 300,000 people high off their ass. And uh, it just sucks. That's so many people. <laughs> Does Altamont Raceway still exist? Are there still races there? Actually, it was open until, I think, 2008. It oh. was open for a long time. And it, uh, it, it would host a lot of... Um, uh, like lower level NASCAR series events because it was a half mile oval. So to be in NASCAR, you have to be at least a mile long now in the modern mm -hmm. age. Uh, but lower level classes would, would race there. Uh, as the sun began to set and the temperature started to cool, it finally dawned on the audience that this would not be the West Coast Woodstock they were promised. Uh, I think when Mick Jagger got punched in the face, that would be my first indication <laughs> yeah. that this would not yeah. be. I hate you. <laughs> huh. That wasn't very peace and love of you, bro. <laughs> the Hells Angels rode their bikes in a parade through the crowd to make a path for the Rolling Stones, which probably looked cool as shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When the, when the Stones got on stage, they didn't really get on stage. Over 200 people had swarmed onto the ramshackle scaffolding. Being only three feet higher than the ground at the, and at the bottom of a slope, uh, people were sort of naturally pushed onto the stage as crowds began squeezing together to see the performance. After a few minutes of begging people to exit the stage, the Stones finally started their set. 
As soon as they started with their song, Sympathy for the Devil, a fight erupted in the front rows. Mick Jagger responded to the fight by saying, Something, something funny is always happening when we start that number. (laughs) (laughs) Shimmy, shimmy, shake it. And then he does a little shake it, shake it. Have you ever heard John Mulaney's story about Mick Jagger writing writing sketches with him on SNL? He would he would pitch him an idea and Mick Jagger would be like sit there with his arms crossed and go, No funny <laughs> As the set list continued, so did the fighting. Most of the fights appeared to be in response to the angels picking them with people in the front row. So people started pulling down amps. The Hell's Angels were dancing in the crowd as well as as well as fighting with fans trying to get on stage. <laughs> I don't really think it's fighting if people are trying to get on stage and the Hells Angels are there to be security. I'm just going to say that. They're doing their yeah. job. Fans should not be getting on stage. And at some point, a random dog wandered its way <laughs> on stage with the band. <laughs> uh, during one of the skirmishes, Jagger paused the performance to say, quote, I don't know what happened. I couldn't see. Are you all right? To, to which the crowd sarcastically responded, No thanks to the angels! Fuck the angels! Angels go home! <laughs> they all said that at the same time. <laughs> Isn't that what they say at Dodger Stadium, too? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are the angels and Dodgers rivals? No. No? Who are the angels They're not rivals? in the same league. Aren't they? Oh. Is it the Angels and Padres? They they uh, seldom play each other. There's the thing called the Interstate Series where they play each other, but that's pretty rare. But it's, hmm. I mean, I don't know. I feel like uh, LA's rival is uh, the Giants. San Giants, Francisco for sure. Giants. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. LA and San Fran kind of hate each other. Yeah. Uh, for no reason, really. I think it's mostly San Fran hating on LA. Like, we don't, we love going up there and spending the weekend up in San Fran and I feel like when the people find out that you're from LA, it's like always like a drop in like, oh, you're from oh, LA. Oh, you're from LA, huh? I'm from San Francisco. Yeah. I pay five times. But really, oh, but really I'm from Stockton. But really I'm from Walnut Creek. It's like no one's actually from <laughs> <laughs> Walnut Creek. Um, I think what it has to do, and I'm just now realizing this, I think a lot of people from out of state move to Los Angeles. And a lot of people in California, when they move to a big city, they, a lot of them go to San Francisco. I think that might have something to do with it as mm. well. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Like, I only know, like, three people from my hometown that moved to SoCal. Everyone else, all like, most of my friends actually moved up to the Bay Area. I think that's, I think that's coming from a small town. Like, L.A., at least in the Midwest, has this connotation of being, like, this huge unmanageable city when re- in reality it's, like, spread out and there's a bunch of neighborhoods mm-hmm. and it's actually you're very chill but coming from a small town it seems very intimidating and san francisco for some reason doesn't seem that intimidating where it's in reality the it's opposite like so expensive yeah yeah, yeah. sam i mean the bay area is way more cramped oh 100 yeah la we'll get back to more past gas but right now a word from our sponsors A documentary crew had been following the Rolling Stones throughout their live tour and happened to be recording the entire experience at Altamont Raceway. You can see a lot of this footage in the 1970 documentary Gimme Shelter. 
The footage shows that in most of the fights that took place in the crowd, at least one Hell's Angel can be spotted. Again, though, I'm not sure if it's fighting if they're doing their job. Uh, at one point, a member of the club walked up to Mick Jagger and whispered something in his ear. Jagger just sort of stood in place afterwards, staring at a certain portion of the crowd and shaking his, shaking his head slowly from side to side in disapproval of everything that was happening. Despite repeatedly begging the crowd to stop by asking, Oh, people, <laughs> who's fighting and what for? We don't want to fight. Come on, shimmy, 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 shake, shake. <laughs> Uh, the fights continued oh ronnie scheider the business manager of the stones at the time said quote uh when i was up on the stage i wondered if we would get out alive it was frightening on that level just a sea of you know dirty hippies and then on the other side were the hell's angels um at one point mick jagger decided the best way to keep the peace was to have everyone sit down on the ground so that they could keep the mojo shimmy baby yeah baby <laughs> groovy baby keep my mojo my mojo's missing baby so the audience kicked down some of the hell's angels bikes and used them as impromptu seats which as we learned in the last episode was not a successful wager for peace yeah, their bikes were their money. Yeah, man, their bikes were their bikes were their lives, yeah. dude. Near the end of the song "Under My Thumb," one audience member, an 18-year-old African American named Meredith Hunter, decided to climb onto one of the speakers near the stage. Four Hell's Angels members confronted him and threw him back into the crowd and beat him. Enraged and so high he could barely walk, as his girlfriend testified, he pulled out a long barrel, 22 caliber revolver. He had brought with him. Surprisingly, Meredith's motive to carry was pretty reasonable. He carried the gun for protection against any racists who might try something. This was the 60s, after all. And it's still the same now. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, <laughs> it's exactly the same now. Yeah, I don't, I don't really, I don't blame Meredith for carrying a gun. Yeah, man. At all. Um, almost immediately after drawing a weapon, Hell's Angels' Alan Pissarro charged him with a knife and stabbed him multiple times in the upper back and once behind the ear. As Hunter laid on the ground, he reportedly said, I wasn't going to shoot, but it was too late. Other members reportedly stomped on Hunter and beat him with a trash can lid while he was on the ground. The head of medical services at the event said that his wounds were so severe that even if he had been stabbed in an operating room, he likely still would have died. He was pronounced dead at 6.20 p.m. at the concert. Overall, four people died at the Altamont Speedway free concert. But also, four people were born there, too. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> one death due to accidental drowning, one due to a stabbing by the Hells Angels member, and two due to a car accident. How do you get in a car accident at a freaking parking lot? At a racetrack? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Keith Richards' threat, either those cats play cool, we won't play, hadn't persuaded the audience well enough. People reported seeing people get trampled and attacked in the crowd, angels pulling people off the stage by their hair, and targeted attacks using weighted pull cues, sharpened bike spokes, and bike chains. I don't know, man. It's just also, it's so sad and so needless at the same time. They... Shouldn't have had this concert. Oh, yeah, 100%. You know. I wonder, it's, I mean, just watching that Woodstock documentary and they realize, like, oh, shit, like, 
we're not prepared at all. We have to divert our all of our uh, like attention towards either building the fences or building the stage or getting food. Mm-hmm. You can't at least at this point you can't just like send an email to everyone who bought a ticket. Like you have to just go with it cuz 300,000 people are going to show up regardless and you have to make it <laughs> the least dangerous thing possible which is like I understand like going through with it because there would have been so many people just angry that the concert wasn't going on. I bet there would have been more deaths. Yeah, there probably would have been like an all-out riot if they would have been yeah. like, yeah, we're we're not playing. That guy punched me in the face and said he hated me. <laughs> yeah. Over 50 years later, the Altamont Free Concert is still considered one of the most disastrous moments in rock and has become a symbol for the death of the innocence of the 60s. It was the end of the hippie era in America. It also was a huge PR blow for the Hells Angels, who were still enjoying fame as America's favorite bad boys. But after the death of Meredith Hunter, public perception of the club shifted to nothing more than an organized group of violent thugs who were just looking for a reason to hurt someone. The, re- the release of the documentary of the event, Gimme Shelter, only furthered that image, painting the band members as the victims. But let's be real. Every party who insisted on keeping Altamont going was to blame. So the question remains, why hire the Hells Angels in the first place? It makes sense not to want the police at your drug-fueled bonanza, but surely there were other choices for security. When you take into consideration the Stones' familiarity with the Hells Angels, it becomes clear why they would consider them. The Rolling Stones were aware of the Hells Angels, but the English chapters of the club at the time were way less aggressive than their stateside counterparts, so the band didn't exactly know what they were signing up for. As Joel Selvin, author of the book Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hells Angels, and The Inside Story of Rock's Darkest Day put it, The hippies never expected this kind of violence from the angels and had no idea what to do about it. The angels, on the other hand, were quite aware that they were badly outnumbered and knew they could only hope to rule through intimidation. Looking back at what went wrong in Altamont, most people blame the Hells Angels. And while the presence of the Hells Angels definitely added a tension in the air, that wasn't there at Woodstock, Altamont was more similar to Woodstock in more ways than it wasn't. Woodstock was violent. It was only a free concert because when the fans showed up, they tore down the fences and burned down the ticket and concession booths because they didn't believe in prices, man. Really, Woodstock started with a united act of violence, but what kept it from spiraling downhill was the lack of an external menacing force such as the Hells Angels. Having the Hells Angels there probably didn't help. But also, you know, having to do security for 300,000 people was also... I, I, I get why they did intimidation. I don't want to sound like I'm too much of an apologist, obviously. Mm-hmm. But If you saw the Woodstock documentary, the Please Force and Wavy Gravy, like, they were handling shit. And they were, like, you know, doing drugs, but they were also handling doing their job and i feel like the hell's angels were like let's fucking party mm-hmm. that's the difference is like people saw the police force is like oh yeah i guess they're like trying to keep things under control they're still cool though whereas hell's angels were like immediately heads and immediately getting drunk and kind of just partying more than taking their job seriously the 21 year old hell's angel uh alan passaro was tried for the murder of meredith hunter in 1971 uh, he was found innocent, though, on the grounds of self-defense. Hunter, uh, Meredith did have a gun, after all. He was also found innocent of the act of murder 
as the stab wounds that killed Hunter came from a lower-handed knife stroke and Passaro stabbed with an overhand. Hmm. Uh, in 1985, Passaro was found drowned in a river, a death that some investigators labeled as, quote, pretty suspicious, but there's no proof that it was a revenge killing. Uh, I'm probably just going to bet that it, it probably was. I mean, I don't have any evidence to suggest this, but... I don't think it was. Uh, probably not yeah. related. Guilty or not, in court, it didn't matter as the jury of public opinion was convinced. Any favor gained with events like the Skip Workman CBC interview two years earlier had been completely dismantled, and the Hells Angels were solidified as America's boogeyman once more overnight. And while the Angels were certainly not completely innocent for their actions that day at Altamont, people kept their blame pinned on the Angels for years. It wasn't until recently that people have gone back to look at the factors surrounding the entire event and reassess that perhaps the Angels weren't the only villains in all of this. In fact, the Rolling Stones have never really publicly acknowledged the incident. In a radio interview after the concert, Sam Cutler, one of the event organizers, said, if, quote, if people didn't dig it, I'm sorry, uh, which is kind of a callous, irresponsible, yeah, f yeah. That dude. thing to say. Uh, the Gimme Shelter documentary was somewhat flawed in its viewpoint and execution with a heavy bias towards... Uh, the Stones. Here's what Hell's Angel President Sonny Barger had to say in response in a 1969 radio interview after the incident. I didn't go there to police nothing, man. I ain't no cop. I ain't never gonna ever pretend to be a cop. And this Mick Jagger, he puts it all on the Angels, man. Like, he used us for dupes, man. And as far as I'm concerned, we were the biggest suckers for that idiot that I could ever see. And you know what? They told me if I could sit on the stage so no one would climb over me, I could drink beer until the show was over, and that's what I went there to do. But you know what? When they started messing over our bikes, they started it. So, obviously, the Angels took great offense to people knocking over the motorcycles to use as seats. They should have. And as we've discussed... Yeah, I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, and as we've discussed... Why were their motorcycles so close to the stage? Because they rode them up. They used it as a... In the back. No, they used it as a as a uh, to part the sea. Remember, to separate oh, the yeah, crowd, to yeah. escort okay. the Rolling Stones. Still, um, though, just go park it in the back. Like it's like we had this like VidCon party a couple years ago, and we had these really nice cars parked outside, and like all these like teenagers were leaning on them and like oh, yeah. trying to like climb up on them. Like people don't have respect for stuff. Absolutely not. I remember that now. That was, I was uh, yeah. yeah. So mad. Um, as we've discussed in the past, you mess with an angel's bike, you're messing with his life. Seti says, in the, Sonny later says in the interview that he loves his bike more than anything else in the world. And when those stoned hippies knocked over his motorcycle, it was, it was on as far as the angels were concerned. The impact on the Hells Angels from the entire Altamont uh, incident is still being paid for. The public was truly afraid of the angels. The shift in public opinion obviously increased tensions between the population, but it would especially introduce more complications with the police. The Hells Angels had turned off the public, and it would have to suffer the consequences for years to come. And that's what we'll get into next time on Past Gas. Sorry if I come off as anti-Hells Angels. I, I want to be impartial as possible, but... I, yeah, maybe it is on the concert promoters. Like, don't hire these rough dudes to like be 
security. Maybe they're trying to take a cue from what happened at Woodstock, but that was like, yeah, Wavy Gravy and his commune was like coming from a real place of love. And I feel like you give these dudes any kind of like authority and beer and something. Well, I just think happen. like more than anything, they were unqualified and then it went to shit. Yeah. Like they don't know what to do. There weren't enough of them. They had planned for 50,000 people to come and 300,000 people came. So I just think it's like more than anything, it's just being naive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That has been <laughs> part four of our Hells Angels series. We're going to conclude next week. Uh, we're going to look into some more contemporary events in Hells Angels history. See where they're at today because the club has changed a lot since Altamont. Um, but it still keeps that uh, that image. So we're going to see what's going on with them. Uh, I want to thank you guys for listening so much. Uh, I love doing the podcast. And it's uh, I'm just ha- so happy that you guys are here with us. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, if you don't already, go follow our YouTube channel, Donut Media. And we also have the podcast on its own channel called Donut Podcasts. Uh, follow Donut across social media to keep up to date on everything that we're doing. We got tons of stuff coming up. Uh, at Donut Media pretty much everywhere. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at James Pumphrey. Follow Nolan at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Uh, that's a really good way to uh, catch some potential leaks because if there's anything I know about me and my boys, we love leaking. Uh, yeah, uh, thanks so much for listening. Maybe leave us a review down below. Support all of our sponsors, and uh, I love you. Yeah, uh, be kind. It <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.